Lit Service is brought to you by Writers Clearinghouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. And this is our 50th episode. We're apparently we're seven. <laughs> yeah. So I'm Aaliyah and a quick elevator pitch of myself. I am all the stubbornness and amiability of Sam the Hobbit combined with the non-paranoid, scent-loving side of Vin from Mistborn. And we did not discuss who was going next. Nope. <laughs> You are. Go. Cool. Well, I'm the normally reserved but occasionally gleeful nerd of Alan Grant mixed with the well-reasoned but completely insane interior of Ian Malcolm. I love how both of those are Jurassic Park. It's almost (laughs) Um, like it's intentional. (laughs) Almost, but not quite. It wasn't foreshadowed enough. I'm Caitlin, and I'm going to go with the Marsh Girl from where the crawdads seem, mostly because I just read it, but also because she's obsessively interested in only one subject at a time and hides from people. Meets Luna Lovegood, who's quirky, believes everything, and has cool hair. Accurate. And I'm Kristen, and I have the dual ambition and uncertainty of Adam Parrish, mixed with Joe March, who loves books, love her three sisters, and makes decisions that are good for her, but probably annoy all the people who love her most. <coughs> Lori. Lori. <coughs> very nice. I feel like all of these are very, very on point. Well done, team. So today, we have a fun discussion. We are going to talk about... When to get into the weeds with your writing versus summarizing. So basically, how do we know when to go deep and when to gloss through details? So in other words, your word count is going up and you're getting nowhere. That would be in the weeds. So right now I would say we're getting into the weeds. (laughs) (laughs) Or we could just say, you know, you focus, you give a lot of weight to what's important. And not so much weight to the rest and end the podcast. And that was there we go. We are (laughs) 25 minutes under, so we're going to have to stretch it out. (laughs) Well, so so what are we talking about? So the simple answer, the simple answer, right, is you give more attention to things that are important and less attention to things that aren't. But I think anyone who's tried to write anything of any length can tell you very quickly that that is not enough. It gets more complicated than that. Yeah, absolutely. So what are we talking about specifically? Two people came up with cool examples that were not me, so go for it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I'm still caught up on whew, how wildly into the weeds we got so quickly. <laughs> so this, this thing that we're talking about happens a lot in a lot of the YA books that most of us read. So I'm thinking of in Catching Fire at the very end, spoiler alert, they break out of the arena and there's a really detailed scene of Katniss running into Finnick after she's figured out that she's on her own in this hovercraft. And so we get we get dialogue, we get individual motions, we get some interiority. It's a complete scene. Shortly after that, though, Katniss runs into Haymitch, or maybe before. At some point, she confronts Haymitch and... What we get to is basically some narration that says, I shout horrible things at him. So we don't know what those horrible things are. We don't zoom in on that. We don't really see how he responds. We get a little summary rather than the close-up scene that we get with Finnick. I think we are concentrating more on how to do this in general, but there are also like stylistic reasons to do this. 
<laughs> so just bear that in mind as we talk. Like you can make a conscious decision to summarize something. Like we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. That doesn't necessarily need to be summarized and therefore draw attention to it because it's summarized. But anyway. And the yeah, opposite that's too. already getting mm -hmm. into the weeds. So <laughs> let's keep okay, then. moving here. So, so <laughs> then generally, when is it good to spend a lot of time describing a thing or a setting or the blocking? Okay, so for me, I feel like, like Cameron said at the very beginning, you get really detailed with your blocking and your interiority and your descriptions when you're trying to call attention to something so that your reader will be grounded. Though I don't think you should spend a whole lot of time grounding your reader because that's where a lot of writers actually trip up. They want to describe every single thing in a room. And so the readers don't know what to latch onto. So when you're grounding, you do need to give some detail about what it is that we're seeing and where your character is. You also want to spend more time if you are trying to make your reader remember something like hanging lanterns on things that are to come, or if you're making promises about genre or character arcs or whatever else, or if you're trying to cock Chekhov's gun, if you're trying to, to make promises about what's going to happen later or foreshadow. Yeah, you definitely want to call attention and spend time with something. Or if you're trying to evoke a particular emotion. For example, if you are watching a horror movie, the director takes time with the main character during a scary scene. Like in a book, if you're writing a scene about a character opening a door, I mean, it's really easy. They walk across the floor, they turn the knob, they go through. Even that's too much description. But in a horror movie, what the director does is he has the character look at the door and then take a step forward and then look at the light coming through the crack in the door. And like you see the hand trembling as it goes toward the doorknob. It's all in order to evoke that tension and fear because we are really worried about what is on the other side of that door. And so taking time is what gives us that emotion that gives um, an emotional response to your reader. And I would say that people do that in romance novels. I mean, people get super into the weeds when they're like, his lips were the shape of Cupid's bow. And I could feel his breath and my cheeks, you know. They like, smell like wood smoke. And exactly. So when you're trying to convey emotion, that's usually when people slow down and like get into the nitty gritty. So maybe maybe we could take a step further and say, because like earlier we were just saying, you, pay, you give the most attention to what's important to the story. But maybe you can, um, another more useful way maybe to look at it is to consider things in terms of what is most important both to the character in that moment, but also what is going to actually matter to the reader. Mm -hmm. This is one of the underlying reasons why info dumps are bad, because it's stuff that is not important to the character in that moment. They're not thinking about all this stuff that they already know. They don't have to think through it. And then on the flip side, because the because it's not important to the character, the reader isn't having as much of an emotional connection to the same point, which means the world building that you're dumping on them also doesn't matter to the reader a lot of times. So mm -hmm. anyway, that's kind of a That's a good point. It's a problem of being too zoomed out in those instances, I think. That's true. Sometimes you do have to summarize stuff just so that your reader is up to speed. And people who do it really well make it so their readers don't notice because they make that piece of information relevant to their character in the moment that they're describing it, even if it normally wouldn't be something they'd be thinking about. But yeah, there's a lot of skill a lot of, to I'll writing. Take, Who would have thought? I know, a lot, <laughs> I know a lot of times for me, I'm tempted to, when I come across especially something that's like really cool about my setting or really cool about my character, that isn't necessarily immediately needful. There's a temptation to put a lot of time and words on the page because it's really cool and you want the reader to know it's cool. But I think on the other side, a lot of times it's better to summarize that. And I think what doesn't what isn't necessarily immediately obvious is that if you summarize those really cool things, that can actually turn into an iceberging moment where you drop this hook for, hey, 
there's this cool thing. I'm not going to spend too much time on it right now because it won't mean anything to you yet, but no, it's coming. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a joke. If you if you explain the heck out of it, then it's not funny anymore somehow. So I think the same can be gone. <laughs> the same thing can be said for iceberging, like Cameron said. Absolutely. I will say in response to Caitlin's comment earlier about sometimes zooming out at a moment when people would normally zoom in to draw attention to it. I think there are a couple of examples of books that do that really well. And it's worth taking note of them. So for instance, The Knife of Never Letting Go. Todd, because of his environment, lives in a world where he has to be zoomed in to what's happening around him at all times because he can hear people's thoughts. So he's really, really present in his voice. But at moments when he's feeling kind of the most emotional, sometimes he'll zoom out and kind of disconnect from what's happening around him. And automatically, the fact that we're getting a little bit more of the summary rather than the scene tells us how important it is to him. We get the same sort of thing in... Queen's Thief series by Megan Whelan Turner. Anytime Gen is being particularly glib about something, which is a really good voicey thing to do. But I think maybe they're the exceptions that prove the rule. Yeah. I wanted to say the other side of trying to show an emotion by zooming in really far is it's only effective when your reader is on board with these characters are about to kiss. I'm really scared of opening the door. Like if they understand exactly what's going on, that's awesome. And they're right on board with you and they want to know all those details. However, if your reader does not understand what is going on, someone might argue with me about this example, but I did not understand what it was I was supposed to be feeling in the last scenes of of the Lord of the Rings movies where there are all these zoom in moments on Frodo's face looking very, very emotional. And I was like, why do I have to spend half an hour of the movie watching Frodo cry? I don't understand why he's sad. Like the, all the bad stuff already happened. Like, is he feeling nostalgic? Is he feeling sad? Cause everybody's leaving. Like, I don't care. Can't we just end the movie yet? And so I, I, I feel like your reader has to understand the context before you can zoom in. So maybe this is actually what I was thinking about while you were talking that another way to look at this is whether, whether something should be in the weeds or summarized is whether it's the outcome that's important or the steps of how we got there that are important, or both. When you're talking about Frodo's emotional reaction at the end of The Lord of the Rings, it doesn't actually mean anything, right? Because you get, there's the, there's the, what matters eventually is that he's leaving forever, right? He's getting on the ship and sailing west. So maybe you would agree with me. I think the emotional moment there is a lot more powerful than when he just wakes up in bed and everyone's just laughing and bouncing. Would you agree? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you just hate the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I like the laughing and bouncing scene. I, well, do, I would love the interiority. It's just that the way that it's done didn't work for me in particular. And sometimes things that you do aren't going to work for everybody and you just mm-hmm. have to accept that. Well, I so. think no matter what you do, it will never work for everyone. Yeah. That's just, I want to always that's just something work. to keep Sorry. in mind in general. <laughs> so let's spin off that for a sec and um, ask the question then, how do you summarize effectively, a.k.a. Kind of the same thing, know which details to keep, but how do you how do you transform a scene into summary? So maybe well, I could go ahead, Cameron. Cameron. Launch off of what I was just talking about. So say you know you're you're writing a fantasy book and they're traveling somewhere and nothing important to the plot happens on the way. That's a great place to use summary. You can say, you know, and the trip was hard, but they made it blah 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 and jump right back into what's important. Rather than doing a day by day, hour by hour. And then they saw this tree, and then they saw that tree, and then there was a river. But none of it matters later. That's a great place to summarize. Or even if you feel like you have to insert action 
in order to make the traveling interesting because you feel like you have to show every second of a book instead of skipping around. If you're inserting things just to make it interesting and it doesn't have relevance later, that's a really good thing to cut if that makes sense. So like if you're doing a travel story, which are infamously really difficult to do and make interesting because it's people traveling. So what do you put in the traveling part when they're all walking together? Character development? I mean, do they get into fights along the way? Like what happens? And if nothing, this is exactly what Cameron just said. So I'm just getting into the weeds instead of summarizing, right? (laughs) If everything that you wrote has zero relevance to the plot or character arcs or anything else, then just say, and they walked. And that's, that's fine. I think you had a really good comment on our, when we were talking about it earlier, Caitlin, um, when you mentioned that getting in early and getting out late is a good rule. Just when it comes to conversations anyway, I know that as a beginning writer, I really struggled with knowing how much of a conversation you need to give to get into the heart of what's actually important. And so many really respectable authors will just skip the beginning of the conversation and just start the scene at the middle important part. And I think that's something that can be fixed with editing. But if you can figure out how to do it on your first draft, it will save you a lot of time. (laughs) Keep you focused. I I think that you don't need all of the niceties of actual conversation. You don't need to add in all the extra like, hi, how are you? And yeah, I did this and I did that. Like, I mean, all of that is completely irrelevant because books are not like real life. They're Mm -hmm. like, they're, they're made up. And so you don't need all of that extra stuff. I could tell my MMA fighter story if you really want, but. You have an MMA fighter story? (laughs) Well, when I was in college, I was critiquing a short story. We were supposed to write about an experience that was really important to us. It was creative writing class. And the kid I was critiquing had apparently participated in MMA somehow, but like the crazy kind where you hit people over the head with chairs and stuff. And so his entire short story was a blow-by-blow rendition of this fight he had done. It involved the ref slipping him a razor and and a chair to the head and a bunch of other stuff that, you know, it would have been really exciting if there had been a point to the story. The point of the story was I got in this fight. But if there had been some kind of development in the fight, like I learned that my opponent was a jerk and I would never fight him again. Like even that would have been okay. But there was no point to the story other than, and then I cut my face with a razor to make it look like I got hurt. And you know, it was, he was glorying in the details of this fight that nobody was interested in, if that makes sense. At least I was not, as I call That's it. That's kind of one of the, so. we don't talk about creative nonfiction a whole lot on this, on this podcast, but yeah, when you're doing something like that, a lot of times you want to keep the reader's attention. You have to have reflection from the present on what happened. So that you have some kind of perspective to offer rather than just anyway i'm not sure if that's here or there what we're talking about but yeah, mm-hmm. that's your point so how does this differ based on what kind of pacing you are trying to achieve so basically is it different between genres oh absolutely I, I mean if you're going to compare a barbara kingsolver book like the lacuna with the maze runner they're going to be focused on completely different details because your audience has a different sense of what should be given And you're really trying to accomplish different things with those sorts of books. Like in the Lacuna, the main character is, he's a writer. And so he focuses on really small details as he's trying to figure out his life and where he fits into it, especially in the time frame and the location. Whereas the Maze Runner is mostly about accomplishing a plot. And I think when you decide to zoom in and when you decide to zoom out, if if your book is more interior and focused on somebody's inner life, you can really zoom in because that's that's the main point you're trying to get across. Whereas if you have a fast pace, like let's answer these questions, you don't want to be so focused in on the little details that you miss the forest for the trees. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite things about the lacuna mm-hmm. is 
Alocuna is a hole from the ocean to the to a cenote, isn't it? So yeah. It's like the hole. Yep. And my favorite part of that book is that the most important things that happen to him are holes. Like, they're totally not there. They're not. They're burned books that he's gotten rid of. I love that. Anyway, so that book is so good. I so yeah, good. highly <laughs> recommend. Anyway, I, I had that same thought. I just read Where the Crawdads Sing, which I, I read a lot of YA to kind of keep up with the genre that I write. And it was actually really nice to go over and read an adult novel that is focused on prose and on the setting. Like this character is so focused on her setting because she's abandoned as a 10-year-old child and like lives in the woods. Like a wolf is what the townspeople call her. She's the marsh girl. And she becomes a naturalist. And so the, the setting around her is so important and it takes over the book and it is gorgeous and poetry. And that is the point because the book is art. It's words that are meant to, to influence the way you think about life and about people. Whereas if I'm reading There's Someone Inside Your House, the point is to scare me. And so as soon as you move away from like if you spend the whole time in There's Someone Inside Your House being like, and their crown molding had rot on one side and you know if you get if you get lost in those kinds of details in a book that's supposed to be super fast paced you're going to lose your reader's attention really fast and you're going to divert attention from what the plot actually is and like Kristen said plot fo focused books you have to focus on the what's moving the plot forward and those extra details are not going to do that I and think that, that that generally between adult YA and middle grade is a pretty general thing that you'll see unless you're reading like genre fiction in adults yeah anyway sorry well I, well I was just going to say that um, and that's not to say that plot-based books can't have really great moments of interiority or moments when you're really zoomed in because you kind of have to in order to Absolutely. tell a convincing story at all. It's mm -hmm. just that you're going to have a little bit more summary sort of scenes or skipped scenes in something that you want to move faster pace than you would in something where you have time and space to dwell on the stuff Caitlin was talking about, like setting or thoughts or emotions. You have to consider your reader's attention span. Yes. Based on your genre. Yeah. Awesome. Great notes, everyone. I think a final important thing to bring up, they always say great writers come from great readers and there are exceptions to every case. But for me, this has been particularly, particularly true. A great way to be able to develop your sense of when things should be summarized and when they shouldn't is to just ask yourself when your favorite authors are summarizing and when they're not. But that's all the time we have for today for that portion of the podcast. Now we get to move on to the extra fun portion where we critique a chapter from the audience. Just so if I was an actual agent or editor, I would have been a great person to submit this to. <laughs> <laughs> I know as soon as I, I think I have a literal note in the submission that says Cameron's going to be so all over this. <laughs> Wait, can we get a summary, Elio, to give us a little elevator pitch yes. just so everyone knows why Cameron loves it? So... In this submission, a thief breaks into a necromancer's workshop to steal medicine for her ailing mentor. And a quick review, we're going to keep this non-prescriptive, but if you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all our notes, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So what are some things we liked? I mean, it's got necromancy in it. <laughs> mm -hmm. The audience of one, not really. I mean, lots of people like necromancers. So I just feel like it was it was well submitted to this particular audience. Yeah. Um, I would say more specifically, I liked. There's a lot of really nice. This is more complicated than oh look zombies, oh look skeletons. There's a society here where, with what we've seen, there's a potential for a whole lot of great detailed interactions of magic with dead things. Anyway. 
I really loved that too. I mean, right in the very beginning, the author um, gives us so many cool details. The main thief girl that's the main character has these tattoos that let her do magic. And and she's watching this procession go by where there these three doomed royals who are meant to battle each other to death. And I had this vision of scary princes killing each other and then using their victims' dead bodies to fight the other scary princes. And I mean, that sounds awesome. And also there are these cool undead horses. And it seems like necromancy is really pervasive in the society. And like Cameron said, it's complicated. It's interesting. There's a magic system. And I'm I think, excited to see I think more one of the one of the really great contrasts it sets up is that you know you have the evil necromancer Baron the Lion what's his face who's like very very quickly being set up as some kind of overarching villain for whatever series book or whatever but what's interesting though is that unlike most fantasy it's not the fact that he's a necromancer that makes him evil because we immediately then see the protagonist using blatant necromancy to try to save was adopted father friend i don't know if we ever got the detail but i feel like adopted fathers to to save to, to save them so it's like uh, oh, I thought it was interesting is it's like you have a villain who is a necromancer, but it's not he's not a villain because he's a necromancer. Mm-hmm. And well, anyway. I also liked that we get some details like she runs into the haunted and we find out that haunted are more or less like intelligent based on the power of the person who raised them. And I just thought that was a really cool concept. Mm-hmm. I thought there were also some really intriguing hints about her backstory. She mentions she mentions there might be a darker reason behind her name. Her name is Whisper. And when she is in the workshop, she has a vision about creepy things that could be her or could be not her. That was cool. (laughs) I also, I liked one that we have her sympathetically stealing medicine to help somebody. But on the flip side, we also have her go into this workshop of really valuable stuff. And she's actually a thief. She's like, oh, I should probably steal some of this other stuff too because I need money. So I like that we have... A character that's not one note. Mm-hmm. So if we're good to move on, what are some things that might need a second look? So speaking of his baroness, the evil lion necromancer, I think the submission kind of splits itself into two parts naturally for me. There's the first part, which is really a couple pages of just pure world building about this sort of royalty hunger games, but with necromancy thing, which the concept I think is great. However, through that whole thing, we get zero connection, really, with the protagonist. Once we get past that world dump, world info dump, I think we connect pretty well. But for that first part, it's a lot of info dump without any character movement. No, I totally agree. That was my biggest problem. The first page and a half, nothing happens. Whisper gives us some setting, and we get a whole lot of proper nouns that we don't really understand. And but part of, Whisper doesn't actually do anything. Yeah, I was going to say, part, and part of the problem of all this information that we get is that aside from the fact that there is a parade going on, none of those details have anything to do with the plot that then immediately follows. So if I was, was going to oh, go ahead, ahead, get prescriptive, <laughs> I would... If you were, or are you about to? <laughs> oh, I'm definitely about to. I would be tempted <laughs> to, to really, you know, cut all that information down to a line like, you know... Then the, you know, the, she watched the carriages of the parade go by, either grateful or worried about the attention that it would draw or whatever, and then jumped straight into the heist. I'm not saying that we should never find out about this Necromancer Hunger Games, because it sounds awesome. It just isn't immediately applicable. Well, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I just think that um, in general, 
if you can get us in me because it's really clear that this necromancer hunger games thing is going to be really exciting when it actually is relevant but if we can have something smaller to be excited about we'll be we'll still be hooked when the necromancer hunger games is actually relevant to the story and yeah i mean she had me hooked with the first or she i don't know if this author's a a girl but um i assume because the main character is a girl i don't know why yeah i would assume but anyway that's totally not a cool thing to do but just the first two paragraphs there's like a single line paragraph and then a very short two or three sentence Mm -hmm. paragraph and just with those concepts i was hooked because even her name being whisper i was like okay i'm down (laughs) yeah i mean super cool concept it was right there and then it it was really easy to get bogged down I i mean i even was looking at it sideways like is the procession going by like just to give us this information because I was looking for ways to connect it, but it never did. So yeah, it seemed very convenient that she chose that moment to go into the store. I had some questions about the way the magic worked. Yeah. So first of all, I'm really looking for limits for rules because Whisper seems so competent and so cool. She's got all these tattoos that do different stuff, but we haven't seen her fail. So we've only seen her disappear and heal herself and take over a ghost and like all of this cool stuff. So it seems kind of like it's easy and like limitless godlike power just in the first couple of pages of the book. And so it makes me worry that, I don't know, I mean, it's really hard to, to deal with a magic system that doesn't have consequences. Well, isn't that one of... I could be totally wrong, but that's one of Brandon's rules of magic, right? Brandon Sanderson's rules of magic, where Mm -hmm. like what is stopping somebody with this ability from taking over the world? Yeah. And I'm assuming there there are That's actually not a Sanderson rule, but Oh, whose is that? Whose is that? I forget whose that is, but that is a that's somebody's. It's some rule rule. that I think about a lot when I'm reading about magic these days. Yeah. And I'm positive that there are limits because Whisper says that she's stronger than she should be or hints at being more powerful. But it would be really nice to know if this power source is unlimited or if she's worried about running out. Yeah, I think generally speaking, it's really, really cool to see people overcoming limits or like being special in some way, but only if we know why they're special first. So if we see her doing all the special stuff and then everybody else is weak in comparison, it kind of like cheapens her being special because we don't know that it is special or why she should be special yet. Agreed. I also, with that, I'll say that the emotional beats with her magic sometimes felt a little off for me, particularly when she she pushes her magic on the haunted and overwrites someone else's spell. And then there's a kind of a standout line that says she took a step back and was just kind of in awe that she'd been able to do that. But then she doesn't think about it much later, and she hadn't thought about it much before she tried. So I did wonder about that. Actually, if, for me, I read that and I was like, well, what she, was she planning to do when she went in? Yeah. Like, wasn't she? So, I mean, she specifically says that she's expecting more things to fight. Like, so what was she planning to do if she came up across something that she wasn't used so to dealing with? I'm going to halfway disagree and then agree a lot. <laughs> so for the most part in this submission, I'm actually really like how the magic is depicted. In my mind, the main opposition that we get or limits to the powers is that it seems like a lot of people have them. This is how society works. It's not that unusual. So even if you have an unlimited battery, everyone else also has an unlimited battery. So you'll be contesting with that. The part where I agree with what I've been saying is that that point where she's able to over, you know, steal the haunted from someone else and she didn't think she'd be able to do it. 
that moment did not work for me. It's really good that we know that she's surprised that she was able to do it, but there's not nearly enough reflection or lampshading on, so what was she planning to do if it wasn't going to work? Or, you know, it's kind of hints that she's done something like this maybe before, but like how often has that happened? And what does this mean in the greater context of anything? We need, not to say that we need paragraphs explaining when I was a child as an evil necromancer cast a spell on me and now I have a lightning bolt shaped skull on my forehead or something. We don't necessarily need that in this moment, but we need some kind of a, oh, it happened again. And I'm worried about these consequences. It only needs to be like, you know, a short paragraph even, but we need more than, and I'm really surprised that worked. Moving on. Mm-hmm. By the way, the Sanderson rule about magic is that it's the limitations that make magic interesting. Ah, yeah, I think I'm making that up. And I would argue that in this case, the limitations of everybody has it is an interesting limitation. Yeah, it is actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not trying to counter your, your argument, which is legitimate. I'm just saying that. Yeah. All right, then. That. Okay is our time. Thank you so much to this author for submitting. We definitely enjoyed reading it. We have some really exciting news. We have a live show coming up September 7th at Fan X at the Salt Palace in Salt Lake. You must be dressed as Chewbacca Tinter. Just kidding. Or are we? We'd love to see you there. <laughs> our next guest will be Stacy Whitman, who is the founder and publisher at Two Books, an imprint of Lee and Lowe. Submissions are open now. Thanks go to Jason Akinaka, who did our sound design for this episode, and also to our intern, Aaron Lee. Heads up, we are doing an Instagram challenge the month of August with a prize of a free 10-page critique from Rice Clearinghouse, so check our Instagram to see how to participate. You can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us ratings and reviews, and share with your writer friends. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on Twitter at LitService or on Facebook and Instagram at LitServicePodcast. Or you can email us at listservicepodcast at gmail.com. Listservice is brought to you by Writers Clearinghouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Litservice will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. For Litservice, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.